Equality Arizona, you're listening to Ask Smart People Smart Questions, our podcast and event series about big ideas and the big issues that affect the LGBTQ community. We're back for the month of March with our second live panel discussion recorded at the Tempe Public Library. This month, we're joined by Reverend Hannah Adair Bonner and Taylor Kirby to talk about the relationship between religious communities and LGBTQ people. This can be a painful conversation for many of us, and part of the reason I wanted to program this specific discussion is to get past the reductive religious rights versus LGBTQ rights argument that we see repeated over and over again in the public discourse. I think that there's actually a lot more nuance in the ways that queer people are failed by their faith communities and their faith traditions, but also a lot more opportunities for healing and connection. One of the big themes of the conversation is family, both how young queer people can be affected by religion and also the idea of religion as a language that we can grow up in or not, and then how that can affect how we find and determine our own path as adults. We also talk about the importance of putting people above institutions and some practical ways to make that a reality. So I know this can be a pretty difficult topic, but I think there's a lot to glean from this particular discussion. I was really grateful to both of my panelists for participating in it, and I hope that you all find something to take away from this episode of the podcast. Well, it is 6.35. I think um, that's as good a time as any to get started. Thanks, everyone, for being here. If you have any questions, the way we do this to kind of save time is we've got these little uh, cards and papers on the table. So if you want to write a question whenever you have a question, then um, Jeff will kind of run around and grab those, and we work them into the conversation. Um, but then, you know, at the end, if we do have time for, for some actual questions that that's fine that's fine too but that way you know we can at least make sure to get all the questions uh all the questions handled so uh with that said we're really lucky to have um two great panelists with us today um i think i'm going to turn over the introductions uh to to you both so uh hannah can you introduce yourself hi i'm hannah i am a philadelphia native um Go Wawa. Oh, and Fly Eagles Fly. I, I am uh, ordained elder in the United Methodist Church um, for more than a decade, and I am the executive director of the Campus Christian Center at the University of Arizona um, and the director of uh, the Wesley Foundation there as well. I'll ask more questions about a few of those things, but uh, Taylor, do you want to yeah, introduce yourself? Um, I'm Taylor Kirby. I grew up here in Arizona, uh, not in Philadelphia, I'm sad to say. Um, we can't all be that blessed. We can't. <laughs> we can't. Um, I, uh, I wrote a book not too long ago about scrupulosity, a religious form of OCD uh, that I suffered with and uh, wanted to share my experience in hope of helping others. Um, in the course of time as I was growing up in the Mormon faith, um, wanting to 
understand and do the best I could. I uh, went to college, graduated with um, I have a master's degree, one in education and the other in religious studies, um, where I focused a lot on trying to understand my own faith and my relationship with God, um, and I think came to a pretty decent place. Um, but I, uh, my experience uh, has, has, has uh, been one that's been rather difficult, and I'm excited to share it here today. So I was really excited to have both of these people join the panel, um, especially, you know, for me personally, I have an experience growing up in a Christian church, an, an evangelical Christian church, and also having a personal experience with uh, scrupulosity. And it was something that really shaped my ability to kind of figure out my queer identity uh, for years. And so for me, having this conversation is is really interesting. And another, you know, bigger motivation for this conversation is that I think there's there's sort of a problem in how we talk about, from a policy standpoint, religious rights, the religious right, um, and the LGBT community. I think we we run into a big problem where we're kind of put into this false division where, yeah, there is a big fight, but um, people kind of misuse it to represent like, well, whatever the religious right is asking for is sort of representative of, of the needs of everyone who's religious and that there's just a kind of a bridge that we don't cross where there aren't uh, religious people in the LGBT community and there aren't LGBT people in religious traditions and that there isn't really uh, an inherent way for, for a religious faith tradition to handle um, inclusion of LGBT people. So I want to have that conversation because I get frustrated when I go to um, the Capitol, for example, and I listen to the way people talk about bills and protections and education and everything. And I, I'm, I think this is a good panel to have that conversation with, hopefully. Um, and speaking of education, uh, Hannah, I want to ask, you work exclusively with students, right? Exclusively. It's wonderful. So how did you get into that specific uh, practice? Of working exclusively with students? That's right, yeah. Um, I, interestingly, actually, my path into um, campus ministry uh, is probably not what you were asking for in this question, which is uh, I was curating a spoken word arts and justice religious movement in Houston, Texas called The Shout when a young woman named Sandra Bland was arrested at an HBCU, which was about an hour away from Houston in rural Texas. And um, my, the poets that I was working with, many of them were close to Sandra and demanded a response from me. And I ended up holding vigil at the jail where this young black woman had died for a couple months. Um, and it became one of, the, um, she became the most recognized um, name until Breonna Taylor um, in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and so I held vigil there for a couple months and then um, really deepening awareness of the fact that she was arrested at this HBCU, Prairie View A&M University, and the fact that the students were hurting and healing and wanting to take action. And so kind of became uh, casually a minister um, with them in a time when they needed one and that kind of became the pivot point for me and I spent a couple years um, there in rural Waller County at um, Prairie View uh, 
collaborating with Hope African Methodist Episcopal Church, which was outside the gates of campus. And so that's, that's the work that I did there until after Trump's election, it became a little too deadly. And um, uh, we had accomplished what we were going to accomplish in that movement. And I was offered the opportunity to come here to Arizona, where I'd be a, have a few less death threats going on. And so, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's how I came into campus ministry. Cool. Not what you might have been expecting. No, I mean, I, I think it makes sense. Um, working with students, I feel like a lot of the time really kind of inherently overlaps with, with social justice work on a lot of fronts. Um, something that I struggled with in college, figuring out my queer identity and also trying to find um, Christian groups on campus was finding a place where I felt like I could be both of those things. Uh, I don't know that there wasn't something at the time, but it was difficult for me to find. When you have students who are looking for that kind of space, uh, is that something that you're coming across pretty frequently? Um, I think that it made a big difference in my ministry. Um, when I moved from Texas to Arizona, I did so knowing that this was a safer place as a United Methodist clergywoman to be publicly queer. Um, so I, I began the process of coming out as soon as I came to this area. And that, when I came out in 2018, since that time, um, our ministry has become queer and queer and queer, right? So we're at a point where probably like, uh, we have a pretty big thriving ministry and probably about half of them are queer trans. Um, uh, queer and trans, queer and or trans. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure what they're... Um, and so um, th- that has been, I think, a deep need um, for, um, for our community um, to have a space where they can be fully and wholly themselves and not have to sublimate either our queerness nor our faith um, but to have a space in which we can fully uh, live into all the parts of ourselves and have all the parts of ourselves honored, because that is rare for a queer person, because it often feels like in faith spaces we have to hide our queerness, or in queer spaces we have to hide um, our faith. And that's something I've struggled with as somebody who's obviously publicly, very publicly, both things, both a faith leader very publicly and a queer person very publicly, um, I, I walk that, and my students walk it with me, and we support one another in that, and I'm grateful for them, and they're grateful for me. And Taylor, it seems like for you, your experience in academia was really important for working out um, some of the challenges with your faith. Uh, do you feel like that's a space that kind of uniquely gives people the, the opportunity to do that? I think sometimes, like, having the opportunity to look at things intellectually or academically can be helpful. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I went to graduate school at Claremont Graduate University, which, and this will sound like an odd phrase, had a uh, Mormon, an endowed chair of Mormon studies. So there was an opportunity for me to study my own faith, the one that in which I had grown up, uh, from an academic perspective. And what that allowed me to do was to take a step back um, and analyze my faith in a way that was less personal, maybe. Um, I remember, actually, in, in one seminar class I was in, 
um, so there, the, the man teaching the class, who uh, was a religious scholar and also happened to be a Mormon, um, and then there were a couple other Mormons in the seminar class, um, instructing us that when we were to speak about Mormon history, to refer to the Mormon people as them rather than we. And that in and of itself was actually quite helpful um, because it allowed me to take... Uh, to take a break from being a part of the community, um, to analyze the community, and then figure out what space I wanted to negotiate um, within this community that I had grown up in. Um, I think one theme, I, I imagine one theme of, of the conversation we're going to have tonight is, is um, how space can be negotiated within um, uh, religious congregations. And um, I, I find... I, I'm, I myself am, am, am not queer. I'm, I'm a straight white man and have in that way every advantage within the Mormon faith. Um, and even I have had, as, uh, had to figure out exactly how I fit in within this larger system. Um, and within Christ, Christianity, mainstream Christianity, uh, Protestant Christianity, has had, practice, has had more practice with that than I think the Mormon faith has um, we, but what, about what I am seeing right now within my own community is a beginning of um, greater negotiation with the faith community. Um, I'm seeing more and more, uh, especially within my generation and younger, um, people negotiating exactly what it means to be a Mormon and everything else that they are. Um, so... A longer, a, a bigger answer than than than, the, than was the question you asked. Um, but the short answer is yes. For me, academic academia was very helpful in helping me negotiate my space within the religious community, and more and more within Mormonism generally. Um, I see uh, my brothers and sisters negotiating their own space and deciding for themselves what it means to be a Mormon. I guess there's two reasons I, I'm asking those questions of both of you. One of them is that college is sort of the point where it broke for me because I could take like an academic approach to things and that was helpful. And then all of a sudden I felt like I couldn't manage all of the different aspects of it at once and it just kind of fell apart. But the other reason I'm asking is that I, I'm interested in how people get to the space they're in within their faith and, and as the person they are. Uh, because I think for a lot of people there is a real question of, you know, how do I want to be in the world? How do I want to be in my faith or in my relationship to God or whatever that is for you and your religion? And then how do I want to exist uh, in relationship to people who maybe have been hurt by people in the name of of this belief system, right? Uh, For people who are queer, I think especially with Christianity, with uh, like in the Mormon church, for example, there is a real history of people having a really bad experience. I, I don't have to like name all of that, but people have a bad time. Like we know that. Uh, and then finding your way through where do I fit, right? I think there's a big question there of you know, why do people make the decision to fit at all, right? I think there's a lot of really valid reasons, but I think both of you have had a great vantage point to see how people make that decision and to think about that question. So that's sort of the, the open-ended 
thought is just how, how do you see that general uh, decision? I have so many thoughts. Good. <laughs> so many thoughts. Uh, I think uh, uh, something that comes to mind is the so many students that I have that are wanting to be fully fully publicly healed and whole, and yet the fact that because they are students means that they're in a chapter of their life where they're still financially dependent on people who maybe don't um, support them in, in being who they are. Um, maybe they're in the place of their wanting to begin to transition as, as trans folks, or maybe they're in the position of wanting to live into their full queer selves in terms of their dating lives and things like that. And during college, they are in this unique stage where they are, they are adults, but they are also still financially dependent, oftentimes on people whose religious beliefs lead them to want to prevent these young folks from living into a stage that they ought to be able to live into as adults. And so it's, it's like delaying that for them because of the financial relationship that they have with people who are committed to religions that are, are holding them back. And so that comes to mind for me. I think that in terms of finding space, I think that there's, there's kind of things, either stages or callings that folks go through in terms of, I would, I would kind of call it like apologetics as well as like maybe a, a, a stage or a calling to defiance as well as maybe like a we're beyond all this kind of mindset. Um, I think I'm somewhere between defiance and we're beyond all this. And so I think that for me that means that um, I don't engage in much apologetics. I'm not real interested in debating. Like um, I can, but I'm not much interested in, because it, it to me um, those who take texts that seem to be condemning of queer folks and take them kind of outside of the context of the full message of scriptures and try to use them to beat up queer folks. It's not very academically. Uh, uh, interesting to me, nor does it really hold water, I feel like, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it, it, it doesn't seem to me, it's kind of like an argument they think that they're winning, and I'm just kind of like, it's not even worth having. I'm so beyond it that I'm like, this isn't even worth having, and you think you're winning it. And they are winning it numerically in terms of power in the world, but I don't think it really is a very logical argument against, um, against queer folks within religion. Um, so I would say that apologetics doesn't interest me that much anymore. I would say the defiance stage myself, and um, I think I'm kind of I'm kind of partially one foot in the defiance world and one foot in the kind of beyond this world. The reason being is that I'm a queer United Methodist elder, and we are in a stage as a denomination of it. It, it seemed as though my denomination was going to schism, and it's more like the conservatives won the vote in the Methodist church about whether to get rid of people like me, but then we didn't go away. And, you know, the, the, so now they're going to go away, and they are leaving, and they're starting their own denomination called the Global Methodist Church, and the United Methodist Church will continue to have elders like myself, and we will become what the United Methodist Church is. So even though they won the vote, they lost, they lost the, um, uh, the movement of the spirit, I suppose. And so, uh, so I, but because of the fact that I hold ground that is supposed to not exist, queer United Methodist elders are supposed to not exist, but there are many of us, and so I have to be in, a, in an attitude of defiance. I work, I work to put my students in the mindset of we're past this, because we should be, 
and I think it's what's most healthy. And so in the way that I teach them, I expose them to liberation theology, to womanist theology, to indigenous theology, to queer theology, um, and, and, and to academic works that are so rigorous and, um, and compelling that it's, it, it causes the arguments against us to look rather kindergarten in comparison, right? It's like, and my goal with my students is to put them in a mindset where they are um, resilient and where people find themselves incapable to harm them anymore because I have so safeguarded their minds and hearts with real understanding of scripture and God's calling that when people try to use scripture and God against them, they can't anymore because they know something. They have been so well educated that in, in liberation theology and in the thoughts that are a, a, a really very um, scholars like Dr. Wilda Gaffney, who like you can't really like you read her you read her stuff and it's just like well yeah I guess that's right right and and so um, people like Sojourner Truth that have been uh, working since the 1800s right that their arguments are so clear and so obvious about women's role in the church and folks' role in the church that that you can't really you can't really argue with it and so my goal is to have my students come from maybe apologetics and I'm just going to skip them all the way down here to we're past it and my goal is that by the time they graduate from college that they they can't be hurt anymore I feel like you had a an interesting reaction at one point to the that spectrum of apologetics I, and I did I, well first I want to say that that is a I think that that is a very uh, smart mapping of that journey um, and that um, anyone who has been through that can can I can perhaps place themselves somewhere uh, uh, along that that spectrum um, and this is tangential to I, I think where, where you're wanting to go um, but I share your disdain of apologetics um, for me personally I am very uninterested in um, or rather, I I care much more about what is than than defending my religion. And so I, I would, if if someone says to me, uh, Mormonism as it stands is a homophobe, it is. There's there's no way around that, and we're not going to sit here and have some apologetic about no, you really you need to no, it is that, and it's important I think as believers. Um, within uh, within mainstream Protestant Christianity or within Mormonism to reckon with where our communities are, else we cannot make them better. Um, one found one principle that is foundational to Mormon theology is this idea of continuing revelation, um, or put other uh, put, put 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 in other words, is this idea that God continues to reveal truth and light and knowledge to the church. And so from where I stand, apologetics is actually antithetical to this uh, Mormon doctrine because it blinds us to where the church can go. If we become obsessed with trying to prove that the church is correct, we uh, don't allow ourselves to grow in the light of God. Um, to your original question, which was uh, how can we make this, what just... Uh, how how have we created the space for ourselves, um, and how have we seen that in others? I, I want to say a couple of things. Um, in my book, Scrupulous, available on Amazon, um, I talk about when I was in high school and I was so obsessed 
with ensuring that I could have a pleasant afterlife. I was really concerned that I was going to die and I was going to be greeted by a God who was disappointed in how I had chosen to live. And um, in, in an effort to avoid divine wrath, I started going to every church I could when I was in high school. So I would, I, I would still attend my Mormon services, but I found myself going to synagogues and mosques and, and all sorts of Christian churches and, and, and everything else. Um, with the explicit desire to find something better than where I was at. And I found in, in high school a, a couple of things very quickly. First, it motivated me to go on and, and study religion at an academic level. Um, but what I discovered was that there was magic in each of these churches. In every mosque and synagogue and, and temple, there was something beautiful and very real happening, which... Um, first tore at any presupposition that I had that uh, Mormonism had a monopoly on truth, right? Um, But what I realized also was that for me, um, Mormonism was the language that I had learned to speak with and understand God. And I really think that language learning is a good allegory for our religious experience. There were all sorts of things that were just as good as Mormonism, but I didn't speak any of the languages. And I could learn another language, but I discovered quickly that I would always speak it with an accent to, you know, beat this metaphor. And so... For me, what I discovered in the course of time was that I, I had a choice, and it was to stop speaking the language of God or find a way to make Mormonism work for me. And in order to make Mormonism work for me, and again, I, I can't speak to the queer experience, I, I, but, I, but I, I, I think there, there may be something to glean here. For me, I, I had to first be okay with the idea that there were things my community got wrong. I also had to be okay with the cognitive dissonance that comes when you're sitting in Sunday school and someone is saying something that's objectively wrong. Um, There is a skill you have to develop to listen to someone in Sunday school and and say to yourself, no, that's not true. I don't believe that. Um, And in the course of time, I think that I have developed a relationship with um, with my faith that is more authentic, more real, and, and to be very candid, uh, more in line with what I believe God intends for my faith um, than where it is now. Uh, Mormonism is a very young religion. It, it's 200 years old, and in the timeline of Christianity, they hadn't had the Council of Nicaea at 200 years. Um, there's a lot of growing room left for it, and we're certainly going through growing pains. Um, But I nevertheless remain hopeful as I see people um, continuing to have a relationship with Mormonism that's negotiated on their terms. And and it begins with with them realizing that what we have in our faith is a little bigger, a little bit more meaningful than what we sometimes hear in Sunday school. 
know. There's two threads I, I'm really interested in following, and I think I'm going to put a pin in one, which is you've both talked about um, sort of the politics and evolution of religion as like a, as an entity. So talking about potential for schisms, for example, or talking about a young religion versus a much older religion. That's really fascinating when it comes to how queer people can fit into something because uh, the language we use and the way we conceptualize queer identities is, is extremely new in a lot of cases. But then the facts of our existence are not new at all. And so that's, that's one thing. But I think I'm going to put a pin in that because you both got to something that I think is more interesting, which is, Hannah, you mentioned the dependence people have, students have on family from a financial standpoint. But I've also spoken with people who have, you know, a really strong uh, reliance on family from an emotional standpoint and just who come from cultures that put a, a really high value on family. And when they're coming to terms with their queer identity, it's not necessarily about Something that I think, you know, for for white people and white families, you can kind of just wipe the slate clean sometimes and say, well, no, I'm just going to go be me. I don't, I don't need this. But uh, for other people, they have a different value set around family where uh, that's, that's not an option in the same way. The family is also really connected to religion, of course. And what you were saying about language, I think, is, is 100% the same theme, that you come up in something, you come up speaking a certain way and relating to people in a certain way. And being able to come out as queer later always complicates that, whether it's a religious context or not. Um, getting to a question with that, um, I think that the question I want to ask is, Essentially, just you know, for people who are getting to that kind of point, right, of dealing with family rejection or community rejection, or in some cases just trying to figure out how to pivot their family. I think for a lot of people, it's not as simple as just my family sucks or my family's awesome. It's like, no, my actual family needs to change around me or my church needs to change around me. Uh, have you been in those situations personally, or have you um, helped people through situations like that uh, for, for either of you? Um, yeah. <laughs> so my parents are anti-LGBTQ activists. Um, they are on the opposite side of uh, they, the, let's, the, the divide in, in the Methodist, uh, United Methodist denomination. Um, and so I have... I have had my own journey with that. I came out in my mid-30s. Yay for me, right? Um, I, think the most, uh, I think the most impotent that I've ever felt as a minister was when I was coming out of a queer event one night, and there was an older black woman sitting on the curb, um, a bit inebriated, and that was leading her to getting in touch with her emotions in a way that was very overwhelming for her, and she was just weeping at the fact that, like, her mama didn't... Um, didn't believe that God could love her the way that she was and it didn't matter what I said it didn't matter how much I brought out my credentials and my authority as an elder to 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 say that this is not true it didn't matter because her mama didn't believe it right so there's nothing I could do because she didn't 
She couldn't go to a place of fully loving and accepting herself if her mom wouldn't come with her. She couldn't fully step into that herself if her mom wouldn't come with her. And um, I have a different journey than she does. Um, I have, uh, you know, I have very much, you know, uh, stepped into that, right? But it's hard um, because sometimes you have to go someplace where other people can't come with you. And some of us can do that emotionally and others of us can't and so for for me I have very high boundaries um with members of my family who who are like that and I'm grateful for members of my family who who support me which is all my siblings and my nieces and nephews I have a big family so I have lots of folks that support me um but I'm very I have very high boundaries with those that don't and that's my choice but not everybody can go there and that's painful and I have students that ask me like how do I how do I change their minds and I once again that impotence like we can only control our own behavior and our own mindsets and the ways that we live and the way that we love and the way that we see ourselves but we cannot control other folks we can live into it and we can model I think for me what I have tried to do in a generational way so like my aunt was a lesbian and I am and I have queer nieces and I have tried to um I love my aunt I love the example that she set for me and there's no criticism in this but I have higher boundaries with my family than she did. Um, because as a child, I had to watch how they treated her and how they talked about her, and that harmed me. And so I have higher boundaries so that my nieces don't have to see me being harmed that way in a way that harms them, if that makes sense. Um, and so I'm trying to model a different kind of boundary for them. Um, and, um, yeah, uh, I, I think that there is, there is not necessarily... Uh, a simple solution and we have different relationships with our family and different emotional needs in counseling students um, I I have to I have to deal with the reality that they have to perhaps they have to they have to cope with their financial reality I've had some students that have ended up going out on their own and leaving their parents I've had students that dropped out of college because they did so, and they couldn't afford to pay for school and pay for housing, and so they didn't finish their college degree. They chose wholeness over financial dependence. They chose to be wholly themselves rather than to have that degree, and that was very painful, but um, that was their choice, right? And I have other students that choose to stay closeted with their family throughout the four years in order to make it through. I have students that I'm like, I don't see how you're going to do this. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, um, and I counsel them, I counsel them build a chosen family, build a good support network, um, because we need family. And I do think that that real difficulty of going down a path that we can't bring our family on, it, it rips out your heart, but that wound is bearable if you have other people that are going to walk it with you. And so I counsel folks to build a chosen family. Be very intentional about building a really good support network of people that support you unconditionally um, so that when that moment comes, uh, when you're outed or you out yourself, uh, that, um, that you will not walk that alone. Um. Um, but before I give my answer, I, yeah. I know that you know, I, I don't know who will listen to, I mean, millions will listen to this podcast later. <laughs> Uh, millions of people. Millions. Um, but you know, I, I, I don't know who will be listening to this, and I, I suspect that there are um, those who will listen who find themselves within this situation. 
um, reckoning with their Christianity or their Mormonism and their queerness. And I, um, it is not, it is not much consolation, but I, I hope that they know that they are loved, um, by many people, including, um, Jesus Christ, who, who loves them completely, um, and for whom their queerness is not a debilitation. Um, as, as Hannah was talking, I was thinking of Jesus' words in Matthew, where he says that foxes have dens and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Um, so it, it, it may not be of consolation to those in this situation, but I, I, I think it is worth knowing that, um, that Jesus' experience is one that was also of loneliness. And we can see his, um, in his journey and his passion, um, having, having overcome that for us in, in a mysterious way. Um, but to, to actually, you know, to, to, to that end, um, as a Mormon, when we are baptized, we make a promise with God that we will mourn with those that mourn. And so when it comes to finding that space, help, um, and, and uh, ensuring that that space is made for others, I would argue fervently that Mormons have a theological imperative to ensure that space is made for our queer brothers and sisters. And don't, not to cut you off, but yeah. when you're making that kind of space for people, I, I feel like, you know, from, from everyone I've met who's queer and Mormon, mm-hmm. figuring things out with their family is a big yeah. part of the journey. And, and so making that space, I feel like, really gets into that idea of how do I actually change my relationship with my family in a real way? Have you seen that? Absolutely. And I one thing that I see amongst the uh, growing uh, theologically liberal community within Mormonism is a um, an effort to become a chosen family um, for people that are in, in, in have the, that are having that struggle. I, I have a friend in Utah who hosts um, Sunday dinners, and her home is just open. Anyone and everyone come to her house um, and have a family. Uh, I don't know where to begin. In, in terms of, I, I have not had the experience of trying to reconcile with my family. I would not know where to, I, I, I truly do not know what direction someone, someone ought to take. Um, and I, I can't, I don't feel it is my place to advise a queer person in, in figuring out how to do that. Um, I do feel like I have a place, though, as someone within the Mormon community to say, that we have an imperative as baptized members of the church who covenanted to mourn with those that mourn to make that space and become that family when the opportunity is present. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and I, I wanted to say, with, I think that it's important uh, to, with the boundaries um, to, that we can't change folks' minds but I think it's really important that they don't change, you know, to, to, to say that we cannot control what they think or what they feel or what they do, but they cannot control what we think or feel or do either. 
Um, and so I think that building a real confidence for folks is part of the work that I do. So that no, nobody, you know, people can say, well, the Bible says this, and they have already dealt with that verse. And I've already worked through it with them in community. And we've already dealt with what it actually says. And so these folks, when they say, well, this verse says this about you, they're like, well, you clearly haven't done your academic work, right? And so, so, so it, you, you kind of like, with those boundaries, it's like an intellectual boundary, it's an emotional boundary, it's a spiritual boundary that we work to build. We have to put the work in, we can't avoid it. So the thing is, if these are weapons that people are going to wield against us, I think you, I, 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 uh, I make the knife dull, right? I make, uh, you know, we turn it into a prop knife, right? You can't hurt me with that anymore. And so I think that that it take to. I really, I really feel that the thing is to not avoid the things that people use to harm us, but to face them and deal with them and 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 deweaponize them. To to the point of deweaponizing, there's a um, when I I grew up in a very interesting uh, and perhaps unique Mormon household. My 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 father was a Mormon bishop, um, very orthodox in in his practice. Um, my mother uh, has been involved with, with the, the ordained move, women movement um, and, and other uh, Mormon feminist activities. Um, and I, if there was tension between the two of them, I never saw it. <laughs> they, you know, it, 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 it was just all part of being in our family. Um, but there was, there was uh, this one evening with my mother, I remember we, uh, we were talking um, about about Mormon stuff, she was at, at the time in, in charge of the, the the children's ministry, and she was getting a lesson ready. And seemingly apropos of nothing, she looked at me and she said, "I'm pretty sure Sidney Rigdon just wrote the Book of Mormon." Which, if if you're familiar with Mormonism, is a pretty heretical thing to say because the the belief is that it was div- divinely translated, the Word of God, right? And she, and she just dropped this, and I and I'm I'm like 14, right? And I said, "Are you are you are you sure, Mom?" She goes, "I." I I don't know, but I'm pretty sure somebody just wrote it. And then just went back planning her lesson and went and taught Sunday school to the kids on Sunday. <laughs> right? And, and for a 14-year-old, this was, this was very confusing. But it, it actually provided for me a very useful model of how to, I think, responsibly engage within my community. What my mom taught me was, listen, there's this thing uh, I don't really believe I'm not sure this part is true. But in her actions, she taught me that this community manners, matters and that there is more truth than not in it. And I, I actually think that that can provide a model for us as we go about, um, I, I don't remember the, the word you used that was so eloquent, but de-weaponizing um, the, these Bible verses and, and, and other things. We, it is important for all of us in and out of the LGBT community to let go of beliefs within otherwise wonderful communities that are harmful and to be willing to negotiate, frankly, with God um, to determine what is true versus what has been preached before. Um, and, and in doing that, we, we, all of us, can find, I think, uh, greater freedom and utility within our religious communities. I think there's probably a way to combine the last two things I wanted to talk about into one topic in the time we have left. Because of that word you, you 
coined or, or used. I hadn't heard it before, but deweaponizing. I'm sure I didn't coin that. I'm sure it was I'm, black I'm woman. Sure it's a probably real it exists. She just said it real Yeah, quick. I think it's fantastic, and and it's perfect because you know I'm interested in um, from a societal standpoint. How can we? Um, I mean, maybe it's it's uh, not just deweaponizing, but sort of a turning our swords into plowshares type situation when it comes to faith and and our our interaction with society. But the other thing is just for people on an individual level. You've both done a lot of academic work around this. Uh, you both have a big historical perspective on it. And I'd like to hear from a societal standpoint on that. But on a personal standpoint, I mean, from my own experience with scrupulosity, right, the process of getting through that is basically that same idea of um, disarming <laughs> uh, from, like, a nuclear weapon standpoint. Uh, so... I think if, if either of you want to speak to it from you know either a personal standpoint of, of how to do that work or from a societal standpoint of how people can, can do that, uh, I think that would be a really great place to close. Um, yeah, and I, um, I think that there is a certain amount of confidence, if you can tell, that I try to work towards and have my students work towards I, you know, I table, we table on the mall during club fairs to like, with all along with all the other groups on campus to let people we know exist on campus. And then there'll be, we have rainbow flags and stuff on our signs and stuff to let people know. And so that's also an invitation to folks that would like to heckle me. So I always get some of that, you know, folks coming to the table and trying to debate with me or tell me that, you know, not even getting into queer folks, like just women being in leadership, right? And so there's a certain way in which I deal with them, which is I absolutely eviscerate them intellectually and then dismiss them, um, <laughs> rather than rather than engaging in like a real argument because it's not it's not healthy for me or my students to witness, right? Um, so I pr- I try to knock them on their heels and then let them know it's time to go, um, and I do think that that's how I try to deal with things in a way that I want to engage people with confidence and without. Um, that's what I want. That's what I want for my students is to feel so grounded. And to be quite honest, like, how do you get there? It maybe feels like what the question you're asking. I think so, yeah. I think that for me it, is a, it has been and it is a spiritual journey. I do think that um, I would say the Holy Spirit has set me free. Um, I believe that the scriptures are a living word. I do not believe that they are dead text. I do not believe that we can understand them if we study them merely as a book. I feel like the, the interaction of the spirit moving in the world has to help us to discern and to find what did God really intend in this book because it was, it was written by human beings. It was translated by human beings. And every translation is an interpretation. You know, the word homosexual didn't appear in the Bible until the 1950s, right? That was, a, that was a translation. That word did not mean homosexual, but somebody made that translation choice, right? And so it's not just in the writing of it. It's in the copying of the text. It's in the translation. It's in the interpretation. There's so many levels in which human beings get involved in, in this that we cannot rightly understand it or deal with it or teach it or live it without the interruption of God into the process to, for the book to come alive and for God to take back control from all of the generations of men, to be quite honest, over the 2,000 years that we've been passing these parchments around that have 
affected its, its copying, its translation, its writing, its interpretation, right? And so we need God to intervene. And in order to do that, I do believe in, in prayer. I do believe in the intervention of the Spirit. And I do think that it is moments when I, I do feel like the Spirit has intervened and has helped me to see things in the text. I believe that last night in Atlanta, Georgia, one of the most important sermons of our time was preached by Reverend Dr. Nichelle Guidry, who is a black womanist preacher. Um, she is the dean of Spelman College, and she took what, what, what we call one of the texts of terror, which is Judges 11, which is the sacrifice of Jephthah's daughter, and she turned that into a message of hope out of what has for 2,000 years been a text of terror for women. And that is what the Spirit can do, and that is the power of preaching. And um, if you look at the Proctor, um, Proctor Con- um, Samuel Dwight Proctor Conference Facebook and the, uh, the live stream from Tuesday, uh, February 21st, about 33 minutes in to the worship service that evening, I think is one of the most important sermons of our time. Um, so I'd encourage you to listen to that. Um, and in that, she, she does what she does what the Spirit can do, which is take a text that men have interpreted as one of terror and turned it into something that sets us free. And in that text, she says it's a story about a young woman whose father promises to sacrifice her. And she goes and she says, can I have two months in the hills to grieve? She goes in the hills. And then she finally comes home and they, and they sacrifice her. And that's, that's been preached by men as the faithfulness of Jephthah and being willing to sacrifice the thing he loved most, which was his daughter. It was preached by, by Dr. Guidry as, don't go home if they're going to kill you. Which I think is quite a more obvious conclusion that one should come to. Correct? And so, but for 2,000 years, men have gotten to decide what that says, and so they interpreted it from their own perspective. And so I think that for me... Um, we live in a very exciting time, y'all. It has not, yes, women have been preaching and teaching since the beginning of the church, but in terms of being able to really affect what is the official doctrine and theology and homiletics of the church, it's a fairly new development because they used to kill us for doing so. And so we are, live in a time period where so many voices are getting to be a part of the conversation that weren't a part before, and these voices are much more similar to Jesus Christ and to his followers. White men with privilege, with education, with money, with power, all of these things had very little in common with Jesus and his followers. And the people that are alive today that are finally getting to interpret and educate and dictate what these scriptures say have a lot more in common, and therefore, just because their interpretations are newer does not mean they are less legitimate. They are more legitimate because they can actually understand what it means to be a colonized man, which Jesus was, right? They can actually understand what it is to be somebody without this education and this power, which Jesus did not have. They can actually understand what it is to be uh, a person who is, who is not from Europe, right? And so the, the, the interpretations that are being carried out by all these many forms of, of theology that are emerging, indigenous theology, womanist theology, queer theology, are not further from accuracy. They are, we are finally getting somewhere. We are finally getting somewhere where people have hidden from us the truth for 2,000 years. They took it, right? The same people that killed Jesus 
took his story and used it against him the same way that white folks in this country take Martin Luther King's words and use them against him. This is what we do. We kill somebody and then we use their life against them. We see that they have power and we kill them. We take that power and that's what they did to Jesus. And we are finally setting his words free. And so I think that we need to do so with confidence um, and, and with intention and with the participation of the Holy Spirit um, for those of us that are um, in, the, in the Christian faith like myself. I couldn't agree more. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I want to piggyback off of that. For me, the process of disarming um, occurs, I think, in three steps. And the first is that we must approach Scripture. And again, I, I can only speak as a, from, from my standpoint as a Mormon, right? There, there's a lot of other ways they have to do, we, we have to do this. But for me, <clears throat> um, as a Mormon approaching Scripture, it's imperative that we view Scripture, I believe, as thematic rather, um, than, uh, the, rather than utilizing the approach we sometimes do of finding individual verses, um, the, a condemnation of homosexuality, I believe, in, in, the, in the Bible, for instance, can only be argued when we take verses in isolation. When we look at the larger scope and wave of what the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament, tries to say, and this is true of Mormon scripture as well, we see um, a collection of books that is quite preoccupied with ensuring the disadvantaged of our world are taken care of. Um, as I view scripture, um, looking for the themes, what I find first is a great preoccupation God has with idolatry, um, speak, which in our modern terms we, we, can, we, we can define as... as <clears throat> um, giving divine or cosmic status to stuff that does not have it. Um, I also see a great preoccupation with the alleviation of poverty. And in the New Testament, I see these themes um, brought full circle when Jesus says to his disciples that in so much as you have done it, done anything, to the least of these, you're doing it to me. In other words, Jesus says to his disciples that... I am that disadvantaged person. When you take rights away from me, when you, pers- or when you take rights away from this person, when you persecute this person, you are doing that to the person of Jesus. We see the face of God in our brothers and sisters, in, in, our, in the other people with, with whom we interface. And I think that that's important. That's what I see as being the thrust of Scripture. Um, Second, I think it's important to understand that religious truth is only true if it has utility. This is an idea of Thomas Aquinas, the medieval theologian and philosopher, who believed that, we, that a um, religious truth, a religious doctrine, can only be thought of as true if it forges a connection between ourselves and God. In other words, if some religious belief is getting in the way of our relationship with God, it ought to be discarded. Um, and the third thing that I would say, um, and Hannah said it more eloquently than I will, but that scripture is made alive when we approach it from a lens of, um, of Christ's love for his children. Um, after you buy my book, you ought to go buy... <laughs> 
Um, Blair Osler is a colleague of mine who wrote a wonderful book called Queer Mormon Theology. Um, and in it, she uh, takes on this, this question uh, pretty directly and says that when we read Scripture, um, understanding that we can interpret Scripture all sorts of ways, um, as, as, as Hannah um, eloquently illustrated, when we read Scripture, we ought to take upon ourselves the values of the person of Jesus and ask ourselves, what does this story, what is this narrative, what is this sermon have to say about those values and priorities of Jesus? Um, she calls it looking through Scripture with a lens of Christ-like love, is how she phrases it. And I believe that when we can turn to Scripture in that way, we are able um, to actually have a more accurate understanding of what God is trying to say through his word. So, in summary, I think it's important that we look at Scripture um, thematically rather than cherry-picking verses in isolation. It's important that we understand religious truth as being true if it has utility in connecting us with God. And it's important that we view Scripture through that lens of Christ. In so doing, I think that we can disarm the, our own prejudices, uh, which is obviously where we have to start. Um, but the last thing that I would say, too, um, as, a, as a Mormon, I think it is important that I say that um, one can be a Mormon anywhere. Uh, for many queer people, continuing to go to a Mormon church becomes untenable. Um, Mormonism is still very young. We haven't built all the communities we need to. Within mainline Christianity, it's easier to find an, affirm, an affirming congregation. You can't always find that within the Mormon faith, unfortunately. Um, but it's nevertheless my belief that because religion is a language by which we speak to and understand God, we can continue to utilize our Mormon faith even if we can't get ourselves to a Mormon church right now. Well, we are at 7.30, so I, I don't want to keep anyone too late especially because the library closes at eight so like that's that's it <laughs> they turn the lights off uh, did we have any urgent questions from the audience yeah let's see if we have audience questions if anyone has a question you can just ask it there's not a lot of us here i, I had a question so you both sort of talked about these moments that you had um in academic settings that were eye-opening for you and allowed you to, to examine and reconcile your faith a little bit differently. Um, how do we create those opportunities for folks who maybe don't have access to academic institutions to have those aha moments and examine and reconcile their faith and their queerness sort of outside of those sometimes inaccessible places? Yeah, so for the Christian community, there are definitely resources. You know, uh, there's the Q Christian Conference. Um, I think uh, there's another one that's slipping my mind. But the Queer Christian Conference is, like, something that anybody can go to. And a little bit of a – I haven't been myself, but I hear it's a little bit of a um, dating scene as well. <laughs> um, and the, uh, there's an app called uh, Our Bible App which um, is a way that young people especially can kind of just have something on their phone called our Bible app, and their parents don't necessarily need to know that it is a, um, you know, uh, uh, devotionals and things like that that are 
vetted to make sure that they are not anti-queer, right? And so that those are safe spaces for young people to explore on the Our Bible app. Um, and so there are, you know, those are a couple resources. There's a, a lot of, of books coming out. There's, um, there's books about how to come out to your family. There's books, and, and so you kind of can... I, I do tend to buy all these books, and I have a whole shelf of them in my office, and then I kind of, I discern, I read them, and I figure out which ones to recommend to my students. Um, and so I think that uh, I acknowledge, right, that sometimes, like, you know, you don't know whether it's going to be the best resource. Um, but reading the reviews and making sure that these things are vetted. Um, so there are, it's, there's a big field of, you know, just kind of very pop-accessible kinds of resources that are out there as well. Um, so those are an experiential community an app and uh, lots of lots of resources. Um, I think there's one called Queer Virtue that I really enjoyed at one point on my journey because it kind of makes that shift away from apologetics. And by apologetics, I mean defending our right to be Christians and queer, right? I'm not interested in that. Um, but Queer Virtue is more about a book where each chapter is about celebrating one of the virtues that queer people bring to the church. Like joy, pride, creativity. And so uh, it's written by a queer woman, and so it's more of a celebration. I like that one. That's fun. Um, The first piece of advice I would give to uh, Mormons trying to to have that experience to make that space for themselves is to uh, get involved in some smart Mormonism. There is there are a lot of books that um, uh, about our faith and 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 doing good theological work that you won't find at the church library. Um, I, I would recommend anything by uh, by Common Consent Press. Uh, they they publish my book. They they, they publish Blair books Blair's book. They publish um, um, some some wonderful poetry to Heavenly Mother and a, a lot of other really really interesting things. Um, they have a blog as well. Um, that I, I think is important, um, that does a lot of the good work. The Association of Mormon Letters, the Mormon History Association, um, all of those academic associations do a lot of really important work in, in helping Mormons, I think, understand that there is a way to be Mormon uh, that, is, that uh, can, can go beyond the congregation you were raised in. Um, Sunstone does wonderful work this way as well. It's a nonprofit organization located in Utah um, that does a lot of Mormon history work. But at, at the most micro level, uh, if, if there are, I, I, I imagine millions of Mormons will be tuning into this, um, for, for the Mormons that are listening, I, I think it is important, first and foremost, to ensure that we are honoring our baptismal covenants to mourn with those that mourn and uh, j- simply make ourselves available for those difficult conversations. Um, within my community, uh, I, I'm sure this doesn't happen in other faith communities, but there is a tendency to not talk about difficult things, um, to uh, encourage the toxic positivity that can stray us away, I think, from real experiences with God and uh, real meaningful experiences from one another. So we need to be willing to have those conversations as well. One more resource, if you don't mind. I was just looking up. Mystic Soul is um, POC-centered and women-driven. And so uh, that's another Mystic Soul project is another one that, you know, I think the Q conference was, I think, I think um, uh, there was a need felt for, you know, a space that was more uh, uh, empowering, perhaps, to those communities. So Mystic Soul Project is another space. Yeah. You um, talked about Poisoned, and they're just not 
these other bad experiences you're caring about because not everything. I think it's a little easier for me because I embody that, right? Um, I embody the reality of being a queer person who loves myself and is a person of faith. Um, and so, um, and that's, that's, I think, the main thing that drove me to come out. Um, I remember the first time one of my colleagues at the University of Arizona told a student that I was queer before I'd come out. And I remember I sat down with them in front of the Guerrero Center and, you know, and I said, God loves us. Um, and so I have a lot of young people in my life who um, maybe they don't, um, they don't come to my ministry. They're not involved, but they want to they have brunch with me, right? And so I think just like um, loving folks and building relationship. And, and um, I think my basic level goal is just to, to help them to feel healed. That's the first thing, to help them to feel loved. I don't need to like make them come back to church um i i what i want is to con- is is to start with um uh disabusing them of the notion that um god doesn't love them let's just start there and the whole participation in a faith community is secondary to me to them feeling feeling that god is not against them yeah i was going to say one um idea in Mormonism that's very precious to me is the idea that we are on a very, very long journey with God. In fact, in, in Mormonism, we believe that that journey continues after we die, that we, we don't learn everything in this life, and, and in, in the next, we'll continue to learn and grow and, and, and develop ourselves. And all of that is to say that when I heard your question, you know, how, 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 how do we encourage people to know that there's, there's better re- better stuff out there than what they've heard. I, my, my first impulse was to say, I, I, I'm not sure I would. By which I mean, I, I don't think it would be my place to ever tell a queer person that they need to come back to their Mormon church um, or to come back to church generally. I, I, I think that the, the, the walk with God is a long one. And I, I, I would echo what was just said, that... Um, Church can be wherever we are. As the, as the Bible, as, as Jesus said, right, when, when two or three gather in my name, there I am also. Which is to say that church can be at Starbucks over coffee, uh, crying about how you just don't want to go back to church. Um, and I, I, I think what is more important than helping someone back into their faith community is ensuring that they know they have community with you. Um, as, as I've said now, f- f- in, to use, again, Mormon language, to fulfill that covenant to mourn with those that mourn, that's step one. Um, and I, I think that we have to start there before we can begin to bring someone back into, a, back into the full community. And at the end of the day, it's, I think that it is, it is, it is their prerogative, you know, where to... It, Faith must be negotiated by by the person, um, and it's 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 their uh, act of negotiation to determine how into the community they want to be. Something I've heard you both say a lot is essentially people before institutions on a lot of mm-hmm. these questions of interpretation and community and everything. And I think that's a great message, especially when it comes to 
how queer people fit into those institutions and those communities. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if anyone else has any questions. Jeff. You're an author of both, uh, since it's two different viewpoints, basically, on religion. So for someone who doesn't have the language that you are speaking, but other people are... So for me, I feel like I'm talking to somebody who's not even speaking English when I talk to somebody else who's using attacks you know, against the LGBTQ community. You don't, I don't even understand their mindset where they're coming from. There's no reason behind it. So I guess, what resources would somebody who doesn't go to church or doesn't have a church, but still wants to understand kind of the mindset of somebody else, you know, at least the bridge where I can understand where other people are coming from. Instead of me thinking of them as others, like they think of us, I think it'd be more helpful if there's, you know, a resource for someone who didn't grow up in a church. So I would never even, you know, I wouldn't even know where to look, I guess, you know. Where, I guess, where would someone like, you know, I don't know how else to say, you know, someone who doesn't have that experience, that lived experience, understand where somebody else who did have that experience, you know, how we kind of communicate with them. Hmm. I have some book recommendations. <laughs> you know what? Um, uh, a more recent one, Jesus and John Wayne. I want to make sure I drop the author here. I had to look it up. Um, really interesting history of uh, the religious right over the last, especially the last like 25 years. Um, does, she does some really interesting work on um, evangelicals' relationship with masculinity and makes what I think is a very compelling argument that masculinity has uh, guided the church much more than the teachings of Jesus Christ have guided the church, in large part because men stopped going to church, so they needed to make the figure of Christ more masculine. Um, Jesus and John Wayne is a, is, is a good place to start. Um, um, if you're looking to understand... Um, religion generally, God is not one. By I'm blanking on all these authors. I'm nervous right now. But I'll put that's links. as you know, put those links. in the notes. Yeah, so really, a really good, in, really good introduction to the uh, major religious movements. Um, and you know, it's it's I'm a I'm an educator, and so this is a this is perhaps a cheap answer, but um, books I think is where to start. Um, you know, it's and I I, I, I recognize too that it, it is it is very difficult, I would imagine, for someone who grew up outside that community to to, to get it all where people are coming from. Um, but you know, that I I think understanding some of the history would, would be helpful. I also think that having a little bit of a familiarity with the Bible is is helpful to understanding um, American politics, frankly. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, yeah, I think that for me, like I said, like, this is a field that, you know, I'm just, like, not that interested in debating with folks, right? Um, but I think one of the ones that's kind of God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines is one of the books that's, like, one of those apologetics books. So that's one of those books where, like, a gay Christian is engaging with the texts that people use against gay people and kind of um, deconstructing them for folks. And so th there's that field. And so if you look up God and the Gay Christian, you'll probably get other... Um, other recommendations along those lines. I think Torn is one that's written by a cishet white man um, about, like, um, you know, I guess trying to do that work from his perspective. Um, and so there's there's books like that that are out there. And I'm not being dismissive. It's just not my personal interest because I it uh, <laughs> it's my own trauma speaking. I'm just not interested. Do you know what I mean? Right. Uh, yeah. I feel like I need like a Duolingo, you know, to, yeah. to happen. That's yeah. you know, so not I'm, apologetic. You know, yeah. I understand that, but it's. I 
like I don't even understand what they're yeah they're you know at all but yeah so I think God and the Good Christian would be a good one for it to to observe somebody talking through that discussion um, I think that for me Jesus says nothing about gay people and so when people say like well Jesus says I would say just ask them can you show me where Jesus says because uh, there's this thing that Christians do where they um, there's this dude named Paul who was an early Christian who was writing letters back and forth with his friends, and then a bunch of people voted and decided to put the letters in the Bible, along with the Gospels and everything else. And then because Paul, like, it was very verbose, he created a lot of words. And so it very much um, affected, that doesn't mean he's the only Christian or the best Christian that was living in that time period, but he was the most educated and the one with the most access to be able to write a lot of things. And so he wrote a lot of things, those got voted to be put in the Bible, and other things that were written didn't. And so... Um, a lot of times when Jesus is silent on topics, the church will fill in Jesus' silence with the words of Paul. And then somehow in people's brains um, who haven't really spent a lot of time with the text, they think of it as Jesus saying it. And so when, Jesus t- when people tell you that Jesus said something about gay people, ask them where. Because he didn't. I, I, I would add two things to that. And the first is that I, I, I mean this with all love and respect to religious people everywhere, but most Christians, and indeed most Mormons, uh, don't know their scriptures very well. And that's, and that's, and that's, that's part of the problem. Um, uh, uh, also, what, um, another book just popped in my head on, on, um, on the Mormonism side. There's a book, Tabernacles of Clay by Taylor Petrie. It's a history of um, Mormonism and its relationship with sexuality generally. Um, does a really good job of untangling that history. Cool. Well, they literally do turn the lights off, so I'm going <laughs> to cut us off. Um, but thanks, everyone, for being here. Thank you so much, both of you, for, for coming here. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks again to my guests, Hannah and Taylor. Thanks to everyone who attended the event live. And thanks to all of you for listening now. Stay tuned for a discussion on the politics of neurodiversity and an event at the end of the month about LGBTQ plus experiences in Arizona's prisons and jails. To keep up with any of our work, just visit equalityarizona.org.